Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion, where the art of science and the science of art enlighten and amaze you. I'm Ian Wolfe, and in this show, we'll talk to an artist in the laboratory and look up at a New Mexican space station with a planetary telescope. But first up, here's Ed Pollitt with the news. A telescope almost as big as the Earth was created at the end of August by networking seven telescopes shared between Europe, China and Coonabarabran in New South Wales, Australia. They communicated in real time with data from the telescopes streamed around the world at 256 megabits per second, or about 10 times the fastest broadband service currently available in Australia, to a special purpose digital processor in a research centre in Europe. The data from the CSIRO's Australia Telescope National Facility were transmitted to Europe at a rate of 1 gigabit per second, using a dedicated link set up by the Australian, Canadian and Dutch National Research and Education Networks, AARNet, Canary and SurfNet respectively. After the results were combined, they were transmitted to China, where they were watched live by experts attending the 24th Asia-Pacific Advanced Network Meeting. This type of distributed astronomy is called Very Long Baseline Interferometry, or VLBI, where two or more telescopes, spaced widely apart, are used to examine the same part of the sky, but they are connected, effectively making them one giant telescope. In this case, the two most widely spaced telescopes were 12,304 kilometres apart. The diameter of the Earth is 12,750 kilometres. This VLBI method used to take weeks, or even months. Dr Tasso Tsiumas, VLBI Operations and Development Manager at CSIRO's Australia Telescope National Facility, said, We used to record data on tapes or disks at each telescope, along with time signals from atomic clocks. The tapes or disks would then be shipped to a central processing facility to be combined. There are several VLBI projects planned worldwide at the moment, with even space-based projects utilising the method to look for Earth-sized planets around other stars. Within six months of heart disease surgery, up to 60% of patients suffer from their arteries re-blocking. Queensland scientists have discovered a way to precisely deliver drugs to blockage sites in the arteries, preventing complications after surgery to treat heart disease, according to developer Anita Thomas and her colleagues at the University of Queensland. The technique uses antibodies linked to the drugs to ensure they are deposited in the arteries where doctors want them, rather than in other places in the body where they can lead to unacceptable side effects. Cardiovascular diseases, which can lead to heart attack, angina and stroke, are the biggest single preventable killer in the developed world and result in the deaths of at least 17 million people each year. Most of these diseases are due to a single cause, the blockage of arteries by cholesterol-rich thickenings. 
Surgical techniques have been developed to remove these blockages, but in up to 60% of patients they reoccur within six months, says Thomas, a postdoctoral fellow at the Australian Institute of Bioengineering and Nanotechnology. We thought we could use drugs to prevent this from happening, but they have to be carefully targeted. Thomas and Professor Julie Campbell observed that the protein fibrin, which is found in blood clots, is deposited in arteries within 10 minutes of surgery to remove the original blockage. They then confirmed that fibrin could be used to attract antibodies, which they linked to drugs to prevent the artery from becoming re-blocked. The targeted delivery of these drugs was effective in preventing re-blocking, Thomas found. It also stopped the drug being dispersed within the bloodstream. Because the drug is concentrated where it is of most value, it can be used in low doses with minimal side effects. And it also promotes rapid healing of the lining of the blood vessel, a significant benefit. Various parts of the treatment are already being tested. Anita believes that with a little bit more tweaking, we should see the treatment in hospitals within five years. Anita Thomas is one of 16 early career scientists presenting their research to the public for the first time thanks to Fresh Science, an Australian national program sponsored by the federal and Victorian governments. For more information, visit freshscience.org. With thanks to Sarah Brooker of Science in Public. just had surgery. Your cancer's been removed. But instead of becoming bio-waste, in less than two hours, samples from your cancer will have been processed and stored in liquid nitrogen. And over the following months, years, and even decades, the cancer that gave you so much worry will become a vital source of information for the development of better cancer tests and treatments. That's the promise of the Victorian Cancer Biobank, according to its chairman, Associate Professor Jeff Lindemann. We are on the verge of a revolution in cancer diagnosis and treatment, he says. Scientists are starting to identify which genes are turned on and off in individual cancers, and that's turning into new tests and treatments. For example, up to 25% of breast cancers express more of a certain gene that the drug Herceptin can target, and Glivec, another targeted therapy, has transformed the treatment of myeloid leukaemia. But new discoveries are urgently required to tackle many forms of cancer. For example, ovarian cancer is usually detected late in the course of the disease and all too often can be fatal. If researchers can discover genetic markers, then this could lead to a blood test for early diagnosis or to new therapies that improve patient outcomes. To achieve this, cancer researchers need access to hundreds and sometimes thousands of cancer samples, and that's the role of the Victorian Cancer Biobank. The Biobank was opened by the Victorian Minister for Innovation, Gavin Jennings, on the 4th of September. The Victorian Government has contributed $7 million to create the Biobank, building it on the combined expertise of existing Biobanks at Austin Health, Melbourne Health, Peter McCallum Cancer Centre and Southern Health. The Biobank is unique, says Associate Professor Ian Campbell, a cancer researcher at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. It delivers high-quality, ethically collected and approved samples, which are linked to anonymous clinical records that are part of another Victorian initiative that includes information on patient outcomes years after their cancer. And it's much easier, faster and cheaper than attempting to collect our own samples. Knowing we will have access to reliable, well-documented samples allows us to plan to tackle big questions and get on with the research. The Biobank already has 1,000 donations collected during the startup phase. 
If just 1 in 15 of Victoria's cancer patients agree to donate their samples, the Biobank will more than meet its target of 1,500 donations a year, says Professor David Hill, AM, Director of the Cancer Council, Victoria. Bill Kennedy had surgery for a cancer in his salivary gland recently. When the Biobank called, I agreed to donate straight away, he says. It was a chance to be involved, not just as a patient, but contributing to the fight against cancer. My cancer will be used for something useful instead of just being discarded. People who wish to donate don't need to take any action. You will be invited to donate by your doctor or cancer nurse at the time of surgery. The Victorian Cancer Biobank will ensure that cancer treatment remains the first priority. However, where feasible, and only with patient consent, tissue that would have otherwise been discarded will also be banked. This will provide the fuel to take research discovery to the next level, says Jeff Linderman. For more information, have a look at viccancerbiobank.org.au. Thanks to Neil Byrne. New Scientist Space comes this report of the world's first purpose-built commercial spaceport. It's called Spaceport America and will be a green building, as in eco-friendly, rising out of the desert of New Mexico. The designers of Spaceport America opted for a low-lying organic shape that they say will blend into the surrounding landscape while conveying the thrill of space travel. The spaceport will be the headquarters of Virgin Galactic, which will begin test flights of its passenger space liner, Spaceship Two, in 2008, and aims to be taking paying passengers to the edge of space by 2010. Spaceship One was the winner of the US $10 million Ansari X Prize, making two suborbital flights within five days. The 9,300 square metre $31 million facility features a circular terminal topped with an undulating concrete roof and flanked by berms of earth rising out of the desert. Visitors will enter the spaceport through a channel cut in the landscape walking between retaining walls covered with exhibits on the history of the area and of space exploration. They will be able to look down on spacecraft parked in the hangar and watch them rolling down the runway through the terminal's expansive windows. It's really science fiction becoming reality, says David Wilson, a spokesperson for the New Mexico Spaceport Authority. We think it'll become a destination people want to come and see, even if they're not one of the passengers to space. The spaceport was designed to meet the standards of the Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design Platinum Certification, the highest rating from the US Green Building Council. The building will be dug into the ground so it's protected from the extremes of the desert climate, and it will be fitted with solar panels, a water recycling system, and a passive heating and cooling setup. The design is the product of a partnership between global engineering design firm URS Corporation and London architects Foster and Partners, who designed their home city's Millennium Bridge. The design team is now working with NMSA and Virgin Galactic to finalise the plans, which Virgin Group founder Richard Branson describes as truly out of this world. Construction is expected to begin in 2008 if the NMSA gets a site operator's licence for the spaceport from the US Federal Aviation Administration. That will require an environmental impact study, but we don't expect any problems. Wilson told New Scientist. If all goes according to plan, the spaceport should be open by early 2010.
Thanks, Ed. You really don't want to be in the red with a cancer bank. It's the sound of science. The sound of science. Science! You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SER.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Boo Chappell is a Melbourne artist and researcher who works with materials and technologies used in science. Boo spoke with me from her exhibition in Austria over the internet using Skype. I began by asking what she's exhibiting in Austria. Well, in Austria, um, I'm actually part of a, a, I suppose it's a group show of um, five artists who are representing Symbiotica, which is the Art and Science Collaborative Research Laboratory at the University of Western Australia, where I have Mm. done a couple of residencies. Um, And Symbiotica won the Golden Nika in the inaugural hybrid art category at Ars Electronica. Um, So we're over here representing the different kinds of work that comes out of Symbiotica, if you like, because it's a lab, so there's different artists coming through and... um, and, but the director, Oren, the artistic director, Oren Katz, is, is the one who's collecting the award. And then there's the, um, the manager, Jane Coakley, and um, a number of other people who've been involved in, in the setting up of this space. Yeah, so. so to give the listeners a bit of a, a visual, what sort of artworks have you created? Okay, well, this work that's on exhibit now is called A Rat's Tale, and it is... Um, I'm looking at some pictures of it right now. Yeah, it's well, this is sort of the pictures that you have there are process diagrams from the research that I was doing at Symbiotica. Um, the actual work itself um, is is a panel that's constructed of 204 white plastic weighing trays that are little, little they're, they're about 15 centimetres square, um, really light little weighing trays that are used in laboratories all the time. So I've cut a square hole in the middle of um, 110 of these weighing trays and inserted into that, that square so that the weighing tray frames, frames the square is um, a piece of collagen extracted from one rat's tail. So, um, and some of these pieces of collagen have the rat's hair also embedded in them. It looks a little bit like cellophane. So, um, and then these, these um, pieces of collagen framed by the weighing trays are arranged in the in the shape of a maze, so so wow. um, which was the first maze used in rat research at the turn of last century. It's a deconstruction and a reconstruction of the process of deconstructing and reconstituting rats' tails into plastic. Um, and I, I was interested in collagen as a material initially when I started working at Symbiotica because it has such a kind of trashy magazine profile and I wanted to cross over between this kind of really geeky um, in-house um, scientific sort of paradigm and a really popular culture kind of sensibility of materialism and this process of transformation through which kind of really visceral meaty things get transformed into cosmetics and pharmaceuticals and then represented in this completely mm. different way. Um, but a, a, in the process of this I discovered that most of the collagen used in the, at least in the life sciences laboratories are um, um, kind of scavenged from leftover rats after they've been used in research and the rats have been um, sacrificed, the tails are collected and um, you extract the collagen out of the tendons in their tails. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went about collecting lots of tails of rats that have been used in research and 
and experimenting with what I could do with the collagen um, in this process of extraction. And I found that you could, well, you, um, first you sort of turn it into a gel, um, much like sort of gelatin or jelly, but it's not so hard. It's more, it's right. kind of viscous and wobbly. And, but it doesn't bind water, so that once you take it out of this, um, these bags that you've, you've used to make it into a gel, um, it dries out into a kind of plastic. So I thought this was really interesting because um, it kind of represents this process of extraction of the animal or, or abstraction of the living system that happens in the life sciences or in laboratories a lot. In order to study something, you have to kind of extract it and turn it into a living thing. So we were talking about the speakers that you made. Uh, yes. So um, this is the initial project that I started working on at Symbiotica in 2004. Um, mm -hmm. it's sort of, I see it as kind of a bridging project between my background, which is in sound design and, and sound installation and, and to, into kind of working with um, materials and material transformation in, in this intersection between life and non-living things. Um, but I was really interested in, in trying to look at the way in which bodies respond to environmental phenomena in ways in which we don't necessarily perceive, so sort of outside of our perceptual bandwidth, if you like. And I found yeah. out that, um, and, and I was particularly interested in, in electromagnetic, uh, the relationship between our body and electromagnetic um, phenomena, if you like. Um, mm -hmm. And I found out that bone um, is piezoelectric which means, so piezoelectricity is a property of certain materials, particularly crystals, um, mm -hmm. such that when you apply a, a pressure to the crystal, it emits a voltage, and conversely, yeah. when you apply a voltage to the crystal, it deforms in shape. So that then follows that if you apply an oscillating pressure, you get an oscillating voltage, or if you apply an oscillating voltage, you get a, an oscillating deformation in shape. And piece, piezoelectric mm. materials are used, to, um, have been used as record pickups. You get piezoelectric microphones, etc. So this kind of pro, uh, it's called transduction, the ability to transform one form of energy into another. And I think I, I personally um, like to see the living body as as kind of being in this constant process of transduction, transforming different forms of energy. Um, so I thought that this was investigating this or, or trying to make something out of this phenomenon might be a good way to start. Um, and so I said about, I thought, well, um, and, and the, the initial researchers who discovered this phenomenon, um, Kukada and Yasuda, um, two Japanese biophysicists in the 50s, late 50s and early 60s, um, actually made a record pickup out of a piece of um, dried out tendon, actually. Um, right. Which, yeah, which is um, also piezoelectric because um, the piece, um, tendon is made up of collagen and the piezoelectric aspect of bone is the collagen in the bone. So I thought, well, if they could make a record pick up out of collagen, then surely I could make audio speakers out of bones. Um, and so I kind of, I, I was also in contact with another artist um, in the States um, who sent me some, some research that, she, that she'd be doing on this phenomenon as well. And I, um, so I started sort of working along some of her protocols um, the first time I was at Symbiotica, I was only there for a few months. Um, and I didn't get any results, unsurprisingly, really, um, looking back on it. But then the second time I was there, I worked um, for a year with an um, a biomedical engineering honours student um, mm -hmm. on the project, William Wong, and um, we eventually got the bone to generate noise, um, admittedly very soft. 
um, and we right. measured the vibration with the laser interferometer. Um, so now I have these little chunks of bone with electrodes on the surface that, um, when excited by a high voltage, generate noise, um, which is kind of interesting. Um, it's sort of a sort of a pr proof of concept, and it's also I find it interesting because it's kind of it's a totally ridiculous thing to, to spend a year and a half of one's lifetime and achieve because they have absolutely no audio fidelity and they're very very soft. Um, right. But um, yeah, I'm not really sure how to go about exhibiting them or how to turn that into a work just yet. I'm, I'm sort of letting that letting them sit on the back burner. Um, yeah, um, so I did that. Um, yes. I also was um, playing around with E. coli. So mm -hmm. for, for people who don't know, E. coli is a, um, it's a bacteria, Escherichia coli, a very, very common form of bacteria that lives in the um, lower col or in the colon or the lower intestine in um, yes. mammals or most animals. Um, it's, it's sort of hit the news um, when certain forms of pathogenic E. coli contaminate food and people get really, really sick from it. But most forms of E. coli are, are fairly harmless um, or non-pathogenic. Um, and initially I was playing around with um, the way in which E. coli responds to um, electromagnetic currents, actually moves in relationship to a current. This is a phenomenon called galvanotaxis. Um, again, this, this came out of the interest of, um, surrounding um, relationship between living um, systems and electromagnetic phenomena, but um, mm. but then I, but then uh, over the period of my time at Symbiotica, I started to really consider well, how am I actually going to um, exhibit any of this work that I've been doing? Because when you're working in the lab, you're working these very small kind of processes that are translated through sort of you know scientific images or. Um, um, waveforms on screens and uh, images that, that we kind of very fam um, we're, we're quite familiar with associating with science but they, I wouldn't say that they're very affective you know I don't think they really right. communicate much other than the fact that they are a technology um, so I thought well how am I going to amplify anything that I've been doing to a scale that people can really kind of experience it um, so I said about amplifying this, it, I, I extracted some E. coli from my own um, poo and um, said about amplifying it. I cultured masses and masses and masses of it. Mm. And then I... How did you culture it? Um, it? You just grow it on agar um, in these little petri dishes, round petri dishes. Um, of course. And, you know, I mean, you've probably seen pictures of bacteria growing on petri dishes. So what I did when I extracted it is um, I used this particular um, kind of... Called, I can't remember what it's called. It's some kind of film that you can buy that people use to test water and food and things, and um, mm. and um, it will only allow E. coli to grow on the film. And then you scrape off the little colonies of E. coli and put it into the petri dish. And then I just kept on culturing more and more, which is really not a traditional way to amplify bacteria. The traditional way mm. is actually to grow it in liquid media. Um, but what I was interested in in this kind of non-traditional way of um, method of amplification is I was growing them on this media that's designed to only grow E. coli and the E. coli grows red on the media because it's got red mineral salts in it and so then I right. had this massive amounts of kind of red bacteria which I then freeze dried into these sort of little lipstick shaped um, bullets and I, was, I, I mean it's really, I, it's, being at Symbiotic is very process based sort of 
um, exploration for me. Like I really just wanted to keep on going, playing with the materials and the technologies and, and not being too prescriptive about where I ended up. And I'm like, mm, oh, this is interesting. I've, I've got these kind of things that look like lipstick that have sort of done this full circle through my lower intestine. And um, so now I've created this kind of line of spoof lipsticks out of E. coli, um, which is, I'm working towards a work that's a, that's a sort of comment on, um, on, you know, what kind of shit are we literally smearing on our faces because um, <laughs> bacteria um, loves to live in cosmetics, moist and kind mm. of warm. Um, but also um, cosmetics are one of the major forms of pollution of wastewater. Um, and there's a lot of research at the moment going into um, trying to um, um, kind of separate out um, cosmetics from the recycled um, wastewater so that it can be reconsumed. Um, so I'm not really sure where that one's going yet either, but that's what I've done with it. The only one that I'm really kind of more resolved with is the collagen. You can go and see Boo Chapel talk about her work at the University of New South Wales College of Fine Arts on September 15th. You can peek at Boo's artwork and read her essays online at corpuselectrica.net. That's C-O-R-P-U-S-E-L-E-C-T-R-I-C-A dot N-E-T. And that's all from us on this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild passionate praise, then send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Subscribe to our podcast feed on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. The news was by Ed Pollitt, and Diffusion has been produced and panelled by Patrick Ruby in the studios of 2SCR Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Over the city's ripback sky And everything looks good tonight Shine so bright, a size made for us tonight.